All right, we are back. Taking up on our theme of um, ignorance, and I guess you'd say irrationality, we have to make a slight correction to last week's program. Some years back, we interviewed Chris Mooney, the author of The Republican War on Science. And on last week's program, we confused him with Chris Moody, who'd written the written an article about how phone screens and internet had taken over his family life and how he basically got off the web as much as possible. So it looks as though we won't have too much trouble uh, inviting Chris Mooney back if we'd like to contact him, because as far as we know, he is still on the web. And by God, we should have him back, because I'm looking at what he wrote here from uh, uh, an opinion piece he put in New Scientist, and writing long before Donald J. Trump came along to, in, in any Borowitz fashion, celebrate ignorance... Chris Mooney wrote in the opinion piece that compared to what may be in store for the U.S., George W. Bush's administration looks positively friendly to science. And this, he was taking a look at the then-developing Tea Party. You know, back uh, many, many years back, there was a Tea Party rally in San Francisco, and we sent one of our correspondents to cover it. And uh, he was very derisive, talking about uh, the silliness of some of these people that were there in Union Square. And uh, silly they may have been, but... These are the folks that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, three years ago. These are the people that made up and make up Donald Trump's base. And I'm going to try to not wallow in Trumpness. Uh, I can't resist a, a piece here. A little, a little item, a little blurb from uh, June of 2016, which noted at that time that only 2% of the claims Donald Trump has made during his presidential campaign have been true, according to the fact check organization PolitiFact.com. 6% were mostly true, 15% were half true, another 15% were mostly false, 43% were false, and 18% were pants on fire lies. PolitiFact noted that his 76% false rating far exceeds that of all other candidates who ran for president. Of course, wouldn't you know it, seven months later, he was president. Another book uh, pulled off the shelf that's been uh, gathering dust for the last year or so. Oh, correction, it's copyright 2021. That's been gathering dust for longer than I thought. It's uh, Michael Lewis, his book, The Premonition, subtitled The Pandemic Story. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's a worthwhile read. This book by Michael Lewis uh, echoes an editorial that appeared in New Scientist magazine 14 years before he wrote it. In that editorial, New Scientist said, if science doesn't suit your political viewpoint, suppress it. To quote briefly from the piece, it noted that in September 2004, Thomas Knudsen, a climate modeler at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, published a paper suggesting that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide would lead to more intense hurricanes. Ten months later, when further research supported this link, Newton was invited to comment by a TV station. Before he could appear, however, a NOAA press officer informed him that his slot had been canceled because the White House said no. All further media inquiries were routed to a researcher who contested the link between hurricane intensity and global warming. Well, that was the Bush administration, wherein ignorance was something that we accepted. It didn't get better under Trump, 
when ignorance became something we celebrated, which is something that's well-documented in what Michael Lewis wrote. And note, Trump plays a very minor role in, in the work. In fact, I dare say Michael Lewis is tougher on Sonia Angel, who was supposedly leading California's efforts to uh, battle COVID than I think he is on Trump. But I do want to take a brief look at, at some items that Michael Lewis uh, delved into. In this case, in the fiasco of the federal government's uh, response to COVID, Lewis returns back to March of uh, 2020 when there seemed to be supply chain issues of things that were needed to uh, deal with a pandemic. And he refers to the Department of Health and Human Services, which was managing something that was called the Strategic National Stockpile. The setup he's talking about was uh, dating back to March 13th of that year, when people in California, an epidemiologist in this case named Patrick Ayuske, wrote to the Department of Health and Human Services guy who was responsible for California and explained that he was sitting in what was now the fastest big COVID testing lab in California, and maybe at that moment the entire nation, they needed test kits. They especially needed nasal swabs. He asked for 40,000 swabs, which he reckoned was a two-week supply. The HHS guy, Lucas Simpson, was totally helpful. He called his superiors in Washington, who called the people in the White House, who were meant to be managing medical supplies. I will have to ask about the extraction kits, he wrote to Biohub two days later referring to yet another scarce item, but the swabs are a definite yes. The excitement in and around the Biohub lab was palpable. The replies to Lucas Simpson flooded in. Fantastic, Lucas. Lucas, you're my new best friend. You literally saved hundreds of lives. Lucas wrote back to ask for a delivery address. The truck was leaving a warehouse a two-day drive away, and it contained not 40,000, but 100,000 swabs. Thanks, Lucas. You're literally a lifesaver. Lucas, if you have kids, tell them their daddy is a hero. The next day, at a White House press conference, President Trump delivered a message to America's governors. Respirators, ventilators, all the equipment. Try getting it yourselves, he said before setting out on Twitter to badger individual governors who had complained about the lack of federal leadership. Even then, the truck with the nasal swabs was rolling towards Sacramento. The mood in the biohub was Christmas Eve. Never in the unwritten history of nasal swabs had nasal swabs been awaited with such anticipation. On March 18th, the day the truck was scheduled to arrive, the mood changed. Suddenly, no one knew where the truck had gone. And it wasn't until three days later that Lucas Simpson called to say the truck had been located in West Sacramento, but without swabs. What he didn't say, because he was too embarrassed to say it, was that inside the truck, they discovered not medical swabs, but Q-tips. So far as he could tell, there had never been any swabs in the strategic national stockpile. And oh my God, there's a lot more we could say about that. Trump's response to COVID. What was that recent estimate we quoted on the program, Mr. McMillan? Uh, 200,000 excess deaths, and that was a conservative estimate. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah, I, personally, as a physician, I'm sure it's in the hundreds of thousands. I, I would note as an addendum that the people that died were disproportionately people who listened to Donald Trump. Mr. Miller reports that uh, 
There's been a recent review by Bob Woodward of the things that Trump told him about how we need to keep this on the QT that uh, I guess I need to take a look at. But I do remember on this program talking very early in the pandemic about how it was that uh, Trump was making a big deal about how, well, these numbers look bad because we're, we're testing everybody, which prompted a meme to get sent around about that time that said, the reason our country is having so many heat waves is because we have so many more thermometers, more than any other country. If we stopped looking at thermometers, we'd have very, very few days over 80 degrees, if any. Anyway, let's travel further back in time. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of this program, there's a lot of articles we set aside, meaning to get to and talk about on the show. One was a Vanity Fair piece from David Halberstam, the celebrated reporter and author. Halberstam was writing about General Douglas MacArthur and what happened in the Korean War, thanks to MacArthur being MacArthur. And being surrounded by kiss asses who wanted to tell MacArthur what it is MacArthur wanted to hear. And this is worth a few minutes of our time. Halberstam starts out talking about how, how things were looking pretty rosy in Korea in late October of 1950. The month before, after things going rather badly in Korea, when the North Korean army invaded the South, MacArthur turned things around by landing at Incheon putting his forces behind the North Korean lines, which allowed him to retake the South Korean capital of Seoul. And with that, the North Korean forces had unraveled. This had been a great success for MacArthur, probably the greatest triumph of his storied career. All the more so because he'd pulled it off against the opposition of much of Washington. Halberstam describes how MacArthur flew over to Korea, took a look around, talked to people about the parade they were going to have in Tokyo, to celebrate their smashing success in Korea, but then flew back to Tokyo. Halberstam notes, and, and this surprises me, that he did not spend the night in Korea. In fact, he did not spend the night there during the entire time he commanded. Halberstam notes as MacArthur headed back to Tokyo, it was becoming increasingly clear to some officials in Washington that he was planning to send his troops further and further north. They were encountering very little resistance at that point, and the North Koreans had been in full flight. So he was stretching his orders, which in this case were fuzzier than they should have been. Now, MacArthur's position in all of this was that you didn't need to worry about the Red Chinese getting involved. Now, I should note that in this piece, Halberstam relies upon some people that evidently are CIA, to which I would add, we're talking about the CIA in 1950, which was a far cry from the CIA of uh, not that much longer afterwards. Halberstam notes that an intelligence officer... uh, was uneasy about this. His early intelligence reads were quite accurate, and that was that the Chinese were already in Korea and they were waiting patiently. Now, the border between North Korea and China is the Yalu River, and uh, cocky American forces led by MacArthur were pressing north to head toward the Yalu, not seeing any problems. The piece notes that five days later, October 25th, the Republic of Korea, the ROK soldiers, were heading northward, shouting on to the Yalu, at which point the Chinese struck in in force. The piece notes that the enemy was clearly fighting with great skill. Korean General Payak thought it must have been the Chinese who had ambushed them, not the North Koreans. He reacted by reflex, immediately pulling the division back to the village of Unsan, thereby saving most of his men. This first day of battle, troops from the, the 15th Regiment brought in a prisoner. He was about 35, 
He wore a thick, quilted, reversible winter uniform, khaki on one side, white on the other. Pike wrote later, it was a simple but effective way to facilitate camouflage in snowy terrain. This contrasts to what Halpish J mentions earlier was that when they were thinking about sending some of the troops north, they decided that to look really good in the parade that was going to take place in Tokyo, they didn't necessarily want to have some of the bulky winter uniforms. The prisoner wore a cap, thick and heavy cap, with earmuffs, the sort that would soon become all too familiar with rubber sneakers. He was low-key and surprisingly forthcoming in interrogation. He was a regular soldier in the Chinese Communist Army from Guangdong Province, which is in the south, of course. He told Pike in passing that there were tens of thousands of Chinese in the nearby mountains. The entire 1st Republic of Korea Division might be trapped. They called in Corps Commander General Frank Shrimp Milburn and took the prisoner back to Milburn's headquarters. Now Milburn did the interrogating, while Pike interpreted. Asked, are you a Korean resident of China? He answered, no, I'm Chinese. Milburn immediately reported the new intelligence to 8th Army Headquarters. From there, it was sent to Major General Charles Willoughby, who was Douglas MacArthur's key intelligence chief. A man dedicated to the proposition, there were no Chinese in Korea, and they were not going to come in, at least not in numbers large enough to matter. That was what his commander believed, and MacArthur was the kind of commander where the G2's job was first and foremost to prove that the commander was always right. Halberstam notes if MacArthur's headquarters suddenly started reporting contact with significant Chinese forces, Washington, which had been watching passively from the sidelines, might bestir itself and demand a major role in the war. That was most decidedly not what MacArthur wanted. What MacArthur wanted was what Willoughby always made come true in his intelligence estimates. But wouldn't you know it, in the coming weeks, American or ROK forces repeatedly took Chinese prisoners who identified their units and confirmed that they had crossed the Yalu with large numbers of their compatriots. Again and again, Willoughby downplayed the field intelligence. Noted one intelligence officer later, Willoughby falsified the intelligence reports. He should have gone to jail. Anyway, if you know the history of the Korean War at all, you know that what happened was that the Forces of the People's Republic of China came into the war in huge numbers and uh, soon brought things to what eventually would become a stalemate. Actually, to this day, it's still a stalemate. There's a ceasefire in place between North Korea and South Korea, but I believe there's been no actual resolution of anything politically. Another legacy of this, I think, is the fact that the TV show MASH ran for, ran for decades, I think. Actually, the degree of self-deception that had disastrous consequences in North Korea are outlined in this, in this article. It's pretty amazing. By October 30th of that year, the embassy was telling the State Department that, well, there appeared to be perhaps 3,000 Chinese in the country. A few days later, Willoughby upped the ante slightly. He said, yes, the Chinese were there in the country, minimally 16,000 of them and a maximum 34,000. In reality, notes David Halberstam, the number was closer to 250,000 and growing. Now, I'm not really an expert on, uh, on Douglas MacArthur, but I believe he would have very much liked to have run for president in 1952. But when you know it, the country went with his superior, Dwight David Eisenhower, a general who was both competent and not an out-and-out jackass. And by the way, the opinion that President Eisenhower was not a jackass is not necessarily one shared by KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. We say not necessarily in that because actually we're pretty sure that it, it, it generally is agreed upon by all parties. 
Anyway, this Douglas MacArthur story reminds me of a couple things. Uh, how, well, as we were just talking about with Andy Borowitz, the GOP, and believe me, MacArthur and Willoughby were GOP people, although Charles Willoughby was one of the founding members of the John Birch Society, which is, which is kind, of a, kind of a prototype tea party, kind of a prototype uh, MAGA hat-wearing uh, crowd. But I'm looking at some editorials from The Week magazine from December of 2011, 10 years before um, Andy Borowitz picked up the pen. And it was noting that the GOP makes a virtue of ignorance. Maybe this inspired Borowitz, as, as ignorance goes from being uh, accepted to celebrated. Maybe so, because I know that uh, Borowitz actually quotes Herman Cain, which appears in this, uh, in this summary, and how it was when he was... He, he was bragging about the fact that he knew very little about foreign countries. And yet, despite his astounding ignorance, uh, he was not not sacked in the campaign back in the day because of that, but because of his adultery. Anyway, uh, speaking of all of this, I'm looking down right now at a picture from 2008, from something we saved from our files. It shows uh, Ben Stein with a megaphone. Ben Stein, former Nixon speechwriter, he of Win Ben Stein's Money, didn't you appear on that show? Uh, yes. And I did win some of Ben Stein's money. But noted a piece in Newsweek from this era, Ben Stein's resume is loaded. He's a lawyer, an economist, a presidential speechwriter, and a beloved monotone teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller? Bueller? Never saw it, but I, I'm, I'm, that was a famous quote for a while. He was taking on the role here of moral crusader in Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, a documentary that opened in April of that year. Ben Stein dissects Darwinism and what he calls its monopoly on American classrooms. He spoke to Newsweek's Jessica Bennett, who asked him, why did you make this film? To which he answered, Darwinism is a brilliant theory, but to say it as all the answers would not be truthful or sensible. Well, I I would agree with him on that. And he said, and today's students aren't learning that. Asked, in your film, you compared Darwinism to Nazism. Is that fair? To which Ben Stein replied, Darwinism was very popular with Hitler's Nazi party, who explicitly said life is about survival of the fittest. That led to horrible consequences. Asked, are you worried you'll be called the right-wing Michael Moore? Stein said, I don't purposely try to make myself look goofy or offensive. But if our movie provokes as much thought and consideration as his do, we'd be happy. Well, thankfully, we think the movie sunk like a rock. All we can say to that is it's just as well. But here on the anniversary of uh, January 6th, where I spent most of that day back in 2021 watching CNN, the good people at CNN decided to take a look back at, uh, I have to say, a vastly overlooked aspect of that day and of the Trump administration and of... um, what it tried to accomplish. It focused, CNN did, on Rudy Giuliani. Made the case very effectively that a lot of the inciting of the crowd, which admittedly did come from Trump, but but also, also came from Rudy Giuliani. Said the former New York mayor on January 6th, out on the ellipse just in front of the White House. Over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we'll be made fools of. 
well, true words were never spoken. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. At which point, Giuliani added one of the most scrutinized statements of that day. So let's have trial by combat. Time magazine noted that Giuliani began his speech on that day at 1047, and by 1 p.m., the first police lines fell at the Capitol. Time noted that despite his celebrated career as a prosecutor, the documentary argues that Giuliani over the last two decades hasn't given too much primacy to law and order. And again and again and again in the piece, uh, Giuliani's associates were quoted as saying, look, he's not a dumb guy. He knows that what he's saying is BS. But he also knows that to be at the center of power and get the attention that he craves and to... uh, be in the public eye as he likes to be, he needs to toady up to Donald J. Trump. They described how it was when in the White House, Team Trump got the word that um, the states were now being declared for Joe Biden, and it, you know, it was over. Peevish Donald Trump then asked, well, now what do we do? And wouldn't you know it, it was his ever-helpful lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, that piped up and said, well, and I don't know if this is the exact quote, but it was, well, you can, you can just go nuts, or words to that effect. The documentary goes over how it was that, uh, that Giuliani has become, just you know, in the eyes of the public, most of the public anyway, an utter buffoon. They spent some time taking a look at the press conference that he held at the Four Seasons, which everybody assumed would be at the Four Seasons Hotel. But apparently due to a mix-up that nobody ever acknowledged... The press conference took place at an industrial landscaping company called Four Seasons Landscaping. Anyway, the case is made that, uh, that uh, Giuliani, who uh, wanted to please his boss, Donald Trump, in much the way that Charles Willoughby wanted to please Douglas MacArthur, decided to do what uh, such toadies always do, which was tell the boss what he wants to hear. Now, as we sit here before the microphones at this point, the Iowa caucuses, which are going to be the first round of the uh, presidential campaign, are only a few weeks away. In fact, I think they're next week. Good Lord. Anyway, um, coming out of Iowa, Donald Trump is expected to be the hands-down frontrunner in the Republican race for president, or the presidential nomination. And I don't want to say any more about that right now, but... What really struck me in this documentary was that apparently Rudy Giuliani fostering a riot was something he has had experience at. Let us roll the uh, the the tape backward to 1992. Rudy Giuliani has run for governor of New York and he's lost. Noted time a year after George W. Bush defeated Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, Giuliani leaned into messages seen by his critics as racist and anti-Semitic during a run for New York City mayor, courtesy of a media strategy that involved future Fox News chief Roger Ailes as an advisor. That strategy didn't work in a race that would give it New York its first black mayor, David Dinkins. But Giuliani, former prosecutor and now failed candidate, remained as competitive as ever and believed he still had found a winning strategy for a future race. So... Giuliani joined the off-duty police officers who objected to David Dickens' plan to make the Civilian Complaint Review Board independent of the police department and give non-police officials control. Thousands then showed up to protest the proposal, which eventually would become a reality, 
And speakers among this crowd of riled-up police officers, many of whom were drunk and hurling racial epithets at City Hall, among them the fact that the city's first black mayor was on crack and others suggesting he'd be better used as a washroom attendant. Enter Rudy Giuliani, who shows up to grow the crowd by saying, the reason the morale of the police department of the city of New York is so low is one reason and one reason alone. David Dinkins. The intelligencer notes that the riot spawned two inquiries which were nominally aimed at holding officers who participated accountable. One got led by Manhattan DA Morgenthau. Some black police officers wanted a special prosecutor to be appointed, arguing that the DA's investigation would be tainted by police influence. David Dinkins, ever conciliatory, said he didn't see the need for a special prosecutor. Less than 14 days after the riot, Acting Police Commissioner Kelly issued a 13-page interim report on the City Hall riot that didn't mention Rudy Giuliani's participation at all. Somehow, police only identified 87 of the estimated 10,000 officers and their supporters who participated. Just 42 faced disciplinary charges. Noted the intelligencer, the media played along. The New York Times editorial board praised the report. Of course, I believe it was the New York Times editor editorial board that took one look at the published the day before Warren report and said, oh my God, this is incredibly comprehensive. They left no stone unturned. This should answer all the questions we have about what happened to the late President Kennedy. And I cannot resist uh, mentioning that the New York Times, joined by the Washington Post and LA Times, told the American public that Gary Webb was full of it when he told all these tales about money and drugs related to Iran-Contra. Of course, the CIA later had to admit that everything he said was true. I'm not sure they're aware of this at the New York Times. I hope so. I do know that at the Times, they are genuinely sorry about the fact that they did assure the public back in 2003 that Saddam Hussein really did have weapons of mass destruction. But anyway, Rudy Giuliani uh, is seen by, I think, most people at this point as somewhat of a buffoonish figure. But he is still, he's still a counselor to the presidential candidate, Donald J. Trump, and who knows, come January 2025, Rudy Giuliani might be United States Attorney General. Though this documentary did note rather sadly that Giuliani really had his hopes set on being Secretary of State in the Trump administration. And unfortunately for Rudy, Donald Trump, that incredibly accurate evaluator of talent, passed him over. All right, it's time to close with uh, maybe I think one of our snippets from our vast pile of material. This is a meme that was sent out a couple of years ago that said as follows, the President of the United States is fighting the release of his DNA in a rape case, evidence that would exonerate him if he's innocent. Let that sink in. And since I refuse to close on Donald Trump, let's do another meme. Someone, I don't remember who, set out the following aphorism. Marry a man who says, let me discuss it with my wife first but not because he's weak, but because he respects and values your opinion. This was countered by someone who said, don't marry a man who says I will discuss it with my wife first because he's already married. (music) 
That definitely does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and we hope to have more of the same for you real soon.